0: Welcome to Flourishing Education, the podcast that provides you with conversations with experts and like-minded people who would like to see education turn into a flourishing environment for the well-being of all. So, are you ready? Let's start. hope you enjoy this session. So today I am delighted to be speaking with Professor Mike Hickton. Um, Mike is Professor of Theology and Ministry at Durham University. Um, and I contacted him because I read, uh, upon the advice of two of my Uh, academic colleagues at the University of Bristol to read uh, one of his many books, uh, Vulnerable Learning, Thinking Theologically About Higher Education. So a very warm welcome, uh, Mike. I'm delighted to be having this conversation with you.
1: Thank you. I'm delighted to be here talking to you. Uh,
0: Wonderful. So I contacted you. I reached out to you because I read your book. And to be honest, I I I said to you before we started recording I have it next to me on on my desk at home and I refer to it uh, quite a lot because I think it's a very refreshing approach to learning um, which is so different from from some of the approaches that I have seen in the past. So can we start with what made you write the book or want to write the book?
1: Okay, well, I I started out wanting to do something very different. I'd been teaching in Exeter, University of Exeter, for a few years by that point. And it was a period when there was quite a lot of centralization, increasing micromanagement of... Um, the programmes that I was, I was teaching on. And I'd started off wanting to write something really angry and negative, a protest against what was being done to the, the education I was part of. And um, I wrote a, a couple of things in, in that vein, but slowly over a period of a couple of years, realised that actually what I needed to do for myself was work out what was the positive vision I had about what it was that I thought was under attack. I needed to have the positive vision right in order to know what I was wanting to defend and what I was wanting to value. So that drove me um, to sort of think more deeply about what the kind of process was that I hoped to be involved in with my students and with my colleagues, and and why um, the things we valued might be threatened by some of the structures that that we were facing. And um, I mean, the other thing going on was that uh, I mean, I, I teach in, in theology, specialisms, uh, modern Christian doctrine. And one of the topics I was interested in was the, sort of the place of spiritual disciplines, of, of disciplines by which people are formed spiritually in the Christian tradition and the ways they've related to some of the doctrinal topics I was talking about. And I realized that part of what I valued about education about higher education, the processes I was involved in, was actually the way in which for me, and I hoped for my students as well, they formed a kind of spiritual discipline. At their best, we were involved in part of an ongoing lifelong process in which we didn't just learn things or acquire skills or aptitudes or even dispositions, though those are important, but were actually formed all the way down as, as human beings, as part of a community together. And it was that ongoing process of formation that I most wanted to be able to speak positively about in order to defend against some of the pressures that seemed to make it difficult. And that's where this book came from.
0: Mm. Um, And I guess this is where I really resonated with it in the sense that um, when I did my research around what makes students flourish and languish, when I interviewed students, those students that I would label as as flourishing although flourishing languishing you know is a continuum so sometimes you know they may not be as flourishing as as they could um they those flourishing students very clearly expressed what i've labeled as as spiritual health so either believing in you know something bigger being part of something bigger um you know, and I could be, you know, believing in God or you know something else. But also, if not, um, having a real motivation and knowing and a sense of purpose, knowing why why it was that they were studying the t- the subjects they were studying, um, and that is not something that is often talked about. This this particular aspect, which is such an important part of, of who we are as human beings.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, for me, it was this sense that the learning you're engaged in, in a specific setting, a higher education programme or whatever, is seeing that as part of a longer journey and a deeper journey, a journey in which you are thoroughly involved with everything that's in you. And that journey as, Having a a direction and a purpose to it. And I think there's a deep underlying trust needed that it is possible to learn and grow, and over time, with the help of others, sort of come towards truth, come towards understanding. And that without that kind of some kind of deep underlying trust that this journey is possible and that it's held in place in some way it's difficult to make sense of any particular part of that journey any particular bit of learning that you're involved in
0: mm. yes yes totally so vulnerable learning mm-hmm. would you uh, see when did you write the book so
1: i think i did the writing about 15 years ago something like that 2005ish
0: okay okay so vulnerable, obviously, vulnerability, Brenna Brown, loads of of work around that, around shame. Um, If you had the opportunity to rewrite the book, would you write it differently?
1: I I would, yes, very definitely. So, um, one way of thinking about the approach I took then is to um, think of the idea of a conversation both as both literal conversation and conversation as a metaphor for a um, a communal process of of learning and um, thinking about what it takes to become a um, fully engaged participant in such a conversation. And the aspect of that I focused on in, in, um, in that book was about the way in which that you requires you to be open to challenge, to adjustment, to receiving from others. Going into it ready to speak, but also ready to listen and to hear how what you're receiving from others doesn't quite fit necessarily with the assumptions you brought with you, being ready to to, um, rethink in the light of the challenge you hear from others. And the vulnerability I wanted to talk about was that openness to the possibility of change, of being ready to rethink even quite deeply cherished things in the light of what you encounter, in in the light of what you encounter sort of empirically, in the stuff that you might be talking about, but also in the way that that is spoken about and received by other people. Um, And I think at the back of my mind was a a tradition of um, Christian thinking about spiritual formation which sees one of the key barriers to that formation being forms of pride, where you you cling a hold to what you've got um, in a way which prevents you from growing and learning. It harms you as much as it harms other people. And so the vulnerability side was wanting to talk about the readiness to step back from that kind of pride, to be um, willing to be humble in the face of what you hear and receive from other people, and being ready to sometimes let go of, of things that really go deep into you that you've you've built um some of your life around and then wanting to talk about well if if that's part of if the shape of the journey that we want to take students on we on ourselves what kind of protection what kind of safety do you need around that for it not to be a destructive process and all of that i'd still want to say in some form but There are two things I'd now want to say much more clearly that push against at least some of the language I used and some of the illustrations I used. One of those is simply the fact that um, the other side of inviting people to be full and complete participants in in a conversation like that is encouraging them to speak. People who maybe feel that they don't have a voice or who have been denied a voice in um, particular situations the the journey to discover that they can speak and that they can contribute and that others can listen to them. And it may be that for some, the the problem preventing them being participants is is not pride at all, but marginalization of some kind, exclusion of some kind. And in that case, vulnerability is not the key thing that I'd want to emphasize, but encouragement of um, the desire of this community to hear you speak to have your voice drawn out and to be enabled and strengthened Um, and then allied with that the second problem is just the way in which the that word vulnerability and the idea of vulnerability is a dangerous one to use too freely in a context where there are um well some pretty dangerous power dynamics i mean it is not at all uncommon to come across educational contexts where there is someone trying to write your script for you, someone trying to override you or simply turn you into a someone who will parrot their ideas or whatever it is, various power dynamics where you're being subordinated to someone else's voice. And in that kind of context, particularly if you're not confident in describing what's happening to you in that way, you don't yet know really whether what's happening to you is problematic or something you should accept to hear someone like me coming and saying what you really need to do is to be more vulnerable that's really dangerous that's that could be disastrous when what you might be needing to do is to resist and find the strength in yourself and in others to resist the imposition of someone else's voice Um, I mean I, I work now Closely with people in contexts where they're being trained for Christian ministry, a sort of university liaison person with a set of church bodies doing that kind of training. And there are, I mean, there's lots and lots of good education in that context, but there are also times when um that kind of language of vulnerability and of sacrifice. And of sort of meekness and humility gets used in really quite a destructive way to help hold in place power dynamics that we should be opposing and deconstructing. So I'm more—I should have been aware of it 15 years ago. I'm a lot more aware of it now. And so I would write, it's both with that stronger note of encouragement being the flip side. You know, I want you to be a participant in this conversation. I want to hear your voice, and just finding other language for talking about that um, readiness to listen and to change in the light of what one hears and try to find some language around that for nevertheless resisting at times, uh, some of the voices that you hear and the need to do that for the sake of health.
0: Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. So I I guess that, yeah, that makes complete sense. And, And I love the fact that, you know, 15 years, that's the beauty of of you know we're not the same person we were 15 years ago so you know your way of thinking and your paradigm 15 years ago and possibly the context was different than it is now and maybe that's that's how you know it's evolved and and I love the fact that this conversation is showing how beautifully how we are not you know there's this belief that because we we are Um, we have a a sort of defined personalities or we define ourselves as being this set person there's I often see that not just in in students but also in colleagues and also in myself this need to define ourselves as this like that this is it I'm the finished product Um, and in a way you the, the story in this conversation is really showing that you know It's an ongoing journey. We we are never finished. It's never a finished product.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I, I mean, I very strongly experience it um, as a journey and a journey which has reversals on it. I mean, speaking about myself personally, I, I do think that one of the main ways I've had to go on learning has taken the sort of shape I was writing about 15 years ago, where um, you know, even when I was writing about humility and vulnerability, um, let's just say I didn't lack confidence. That's not, that wasn't my problem at the time. I, um, I was writing very confidently about being humble and discovering that, you know, in conversation with others, in conversation, say, particularly with um, a series of, of um my female colleagues, who helped me hear how some of what I had said had sounded to them, and then um, more recently I've been involved in a whole set of of conversations with um, uh, Black and Asian colleagues talking about their journeys into higher education and some of the barriers they had to face. Um, At times that's been a a necessarily and rightly painful journey to realise that some of what I'd said in the past though I think I was trying to get at some good things I'd said in ways which had also brought some really problematic baggage with it and I needed to find new ways of of talking so I ended up um you know becoming an illustration of my own thesis of that need to in in sort of theological terms to repent of some of what I'd said to 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 reformulate and realize that I wasn't as um I hadn't arrived at the point where I thought I had now, you know, knew how to speak about this stuff with confidence. I hadn't arrived at the end of a journey, as you say, I was still at a stage along the way and had a lot further to go.
0: And I think for me that, that approach and that, you know, repenting or sort of saying, you know, okay, I said things and I recognize that I may have hurt, you know, some people might have been hurt by what I said is also part of the learning process and the growth and uh, you know this is what makes us better individuals or citizens because we you know it's it's about sort of self-awareness but also awareness of the impact of what we do on others and awareness of others that is also part of the journey.
1: Yeah. And that growing awareness, I mean, that's a lifelong thing, of becoming aware of the just the massive interconnectedness of almost any interesting topic we might be learning about, um, and any sort of interesting way of talking about that topic, the way in which that's massively interconnected with with other people's lives and with the communities that, that we're part of, multiple overlapping communities. And because, you know, life isn't tidy, you never get to the end of tracing those interconnections and realizing the differential impact of what you're talking about on, on different people. And that's one of the reasons, just the, the sheer joyous complexity of life, that you never get to the end of this process of, of learning. You might, you know, if you think of learning as learning about isolated to- topics in front of you, just this thing that you can compartmentalize and put in a box, then yeah, you can, you can imagine getting to the end of learning even that turns out to be a bit of a fantasy but when you realize that that thing that you're talking about whatever it is is part of people's lives and there is no end of the complexity of people's lives then learning inevitably becomes a constantly surprising journey or at least it should i think we're all quite good sometimes at trying to manage that to make it manageable for ourselves to to uh, curtail how much we have to pay attention to, because it can be completely overwhelming.
0: Yes, yes. And I think, you know, maybe I guess that's sometimes what I've seen some of my students when, you know, they arrive at university to study French and we sort of, we give them, you know, current affairs or topics that they may have seen in their A-levels, And they say, Oh, I don't want to study this because I've seen it already. I've studied it at a levels Mm -hmm. and, and that there's a part of me that I find slightly frustrating because I'm (laughs) like, you never ever get to the, to the end of, of a topic, because like you say, it's linked, it could be linked to other things and, and it's much broader. So yes, you may have like scratched at the surface. But that you've not gone really deep into deeper understanding. So, how how can we encourage young people to you know, explore this? Does it come also with maturity? Because I re- I recognise that also, you know, I'm a middle aged woman. So, my approach to to life was. Is, is completely different to my approach when I was 16 or 18. I recognised that, that I wasn't as mature and... Uh, but um, is there something that we can help... To do to help our, our students and, and young people?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think for me, when I'm... Um, you know, working on a, a module with a particular <laughs> Group of students in university context. Um, one of the things that I end up focusing on quite a lot is um, even by the time we get students in the sort of second and third year of a three-year degree program, um, still trying to say that the the point of, of this module is not necessarily for you to come up with the right answers, and it's certainly not for you necessarily to agree with me now if I was teaching medicine, we might want to say something different. Or if I was you know, yeah. as a mathematician teaching maths, there's slightly more of a sense that there are some right answers and there are some wrong answers. But in the kinds of, of, of topic I'm talking about, I'm much more interested in working with students so that they can see what I'm interested in Them is how they respond to and work with what they hear. And you know, they, they can make a case for something I completely disagree with, but it's the way in which they build that case that I'm interested in. So one of the initial barriers to get past is just the sense that all we're interested in is is the right answer and whether you get the right answer or not. And if they look in the right place, they'll find the right answer. Um, But then I find sort of beyond that, I mean, I'm teaching in a, a humanities discipline where the sort of long form writing is still at the core of the assessment process. And I find that I end up working through a lot of these um, ideas about the nature of learning and the idea of participating in conversation at the level of working with people on their writing, how they're going to write, how um, I want something which, uh, if they're writing an essay, say, where their voice is there interacting with the voices of the people they've read and are responding to. So, you know, there's that typical question, that I still get asked a lot, you know, do you want my opinions or, or not in this essay? And my response tends to be in a slightly longer version of this, but the sort of quick version is, I don't, it's not that, that's not quite the right question, I'm, it's not whether I want your opinions or not, I want your judgments. I want your interaction with the material you're hearing about, so I want you to, to lead me through what you're reading show me what's interesting about it and show me what you're doing with what's interesting about it and and where that leaves you at the end and it's that process that i want you to show me rather than you just launching in and saying person x says x and i agree with it or person y says y and i disagree with it so I'm, i'm sort of rambling a bit here but working on the process of writing becomes a sort of proxy for thinking about what sort of learning we want people to be involved in I'm breaking that right down. So I often do an exercise where um, I get students just to write one paragraph of an essay they're planning to write and then we work together through those individual paragraphs. Um, and a lot of that ends up, I mean, some of it will be about just the nuts and bolts of writing grammar and syntax and things like that, but a lot of it will be about how to manage that thing of your own voice being there, but that voice being hospitable to other voices and responding to them. how to—that's quite a, an odd thing to manage, and isn't always modelled well in some of the stuff they're reading. So, how do you explore that kind of territory? I don't know if that sort of.
0: Yeah, no, no, totally, totally. Because it's um, you know, for me, ac- academic writing is like a foreign language. It, you have to learn to speak this particular language which is very specific um but it's also about walking on the shoulders of giants so you would literally there are you know thousands of people who are exploring those topics and those subjects and it's about like you say exploring okay which who says what and then how do i view what they've said and where do i what is my perception and understanding of what they've said and where would i position myself Mm um but that that requires you know that like like you were saying it, it, it requires not just okay the goal is this bit of paper that says i've got a degree um and the goal is about wanting to so I guess, in a way it, they, there's a need to be willing to to be uncertain of of the path that uncertainty, so it's almost like I often say to my students when they arrive in in first year it, imagine you've just entered a new jungle, there's no path. What you're going to be doing over the last four, the next four years is to just cut your way through that jungle. <laughs> yeah and trace your path. Yeah. Does,
1: that, does that... Absolutely. So one of the um, contexts in which... I mean, my, my job at the moment um, is a slightly strange one. I don't do anywhere near as much classroom teaching as I, I used to. Um, but, I mean, I'm involved in validation work, so sort of tra- in normal circumstances when we're not in lockdown, travelling around the country to other institutions, and it plays havoc with any kind of regular teaching timetable but i i have a full load of of phd students so my main teaching experience for the last few years most regular teaching experience has been working with phd students which is a form of teaching i i love i really love and one of the um things that's become clearer and clearer over the years as i've as i've um, supervised phd students has been how much of that process is about helping people to cope with the uncertainty involved. I mean, any good PhD student is doing original work. They're, they're writing something that no one's written before. There's no map to show them where to go. There may be analogies that they can use. They want to do something a bit like this other project or that draws on that other project, but their project's going to be wholly their own and it's going to break new ground. And however good the plan is, someone arrives with a research proposal however detailed and carefully worked out that proposal is almost any good PhD uh, thesis will end up looking very different from the proposal because you've been on a journey of learning and realising how much of that is a process of, of coping with really quite difficult emotions along the way where you thought you knew where you were going and then you go through sometimes months of feeling like the direction is unclear and the goal is out of view and you don't know whether what you're doing is amounting to anything. And one of my jobs that, in that kind of context becomes kind of holding the hope for a PhD student. I've been through this process now you know, um, a couple of dozen times with people and I know it's going to be okay. I know you will find your way. Um, I've seen enough of these projects to know that you've not taken fundamental missteps. You can't see that you're going to end up saying anything worth hearing, but I'm confident about that. I don't know what it is. I don't know what you're going to end up saying, but I know that you will. And you become the repository for someone's hope um, and uh, hold it on their behalf, as it were, so that they can have the confidence to live with that uncertainty for a bit longer, not to... need to tighten it all up and and nail it all down um, and sort of get to the point where they once again got a very clear plan in in front of them I mean there's a limit to how much you can do that as a supervisor but it it is a role that you can play to an extent and hopefully when that works well and some people find it um, more difficult than others that kind of not quite sure what the right word is but a sort of protection sounds a bit too paternalistic but that that kind of encouragement that kind of holding is a necessary part for people to take the risks they need to take to explore avenues that might turn out to lead nowhere in the knowledge that the project as a whole will still lead somewhere or someone is trusting them uh, that it will still lead somewhere so that yeah uncertainty is a huge part of this and managing uncertainty living with uncertainty if everything else around you is uncertain that becomes really difficult if you're in a high pressure environment where you're made to feel that everything depends on you getting a result now then that becomes that kills the learning process it makes it overwhelming for people but if we can help create an environment and and fellow students are part of this family all sorts of people can be part of this it's not just um supervisors but creating an environment which is safe enough for risk taking um which is safe enough for exploration which is safe enough for uncertainty um is a huge part of making learning possible i think
0: yes totally because we know that for example you know duga in 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 um, canada has done a lot of of research rounds of general anxiety disorder and and intolerance to uncertainty so you know uncertainty intolerance means that you know the more intolerant we are to uncertainty the the more likely we are to to suffer from anxiety and and things like this so it makes complete sense Um, and also but also it's really interesting because it links in with a lot of the things that i'm getting from from my research so you know similar to your to that language of vulnerability I because I, I talk about mental health and the fact that we all have mental health in the same way that we have physical health and that mental health is different from mental ill health um, a lot a lot of the pushback I get around my work is the notion of context and how an environment where you know yes we can look after ourselves as as human beings and, and there are things we can do to to be well and to help ourselves but actually if you if if for example the environment you're doing your PhD in or you're working in or or your personal environment your socioeconomic background all of those things that context creates a lot of pressure then a lot of people say no sort this out and then I can look after myself yeah so you know it's a little bit like the what you were talking about in 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 the book around you know vulnerabilities that in a way how do we balance this out because I think it you know it is really important and and I often, you know, when I start my talks now, I say, right, I'd like to address the elephant in the room first, and then I'll share what I believe. Because then if I just say, I'm not what I'm saying is not that we, we should not change the environments and the settings. And so I always say, you know, we need flourishing institutions, you know, to have flourishing students and flourishing staff. So you know, it's that systemic approach. So yes, we need an environment that enables us to be, you know, to 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 be able to take risks and to feel safe, etc. But those, because of, of my security, I cannot change. So the only thing I can, I, you know, I can talk to that and say we need to foster those. But I want to encourage you as an individual to look at, you know, what's your locus of, uh, you know, that that. Um, influence where where can you influence so could you talk to that because i think there's some similarities in there
1: absolutely and you're right one of the real challenges here um and you know it's part of that the reason that i'd write that particular book differently now is that was very much focused well first of all at the level as I a spiritual formation the individual and the people immediately around them and the probe the journey they on. And then a little bit about the sort of local academic context for that, the context that, that we as teachers create for our students, so within a department or something. And it didn't really look out structurally beyond that. And um, one of the balancing acts, which I don't think that book therefore carries off very well, is between on the one hand helping people to live within the setup that they're currently facing um, but not trying to persuade them that the negative aspects of that setup are okay or that they should simply be quiet or or acquiescent in the face of the deeply problematic aspects of the structures that they're part of locally and and more um, globally and you know on the one hand i want students who are able to flourish and remain healthy in the spaces that they have to inhabit. On the other hand I don't want to stop them from getting angry and protesting and um, you know whether that's feedback within a department whether it's marching against the decisions of the university or whether it's stuff that goes out beyond that to government policies and things. So not promoting a kind of quietism by trying to promote the healthiest living possible within structures as they currently are and I think that's a there's an oscillation there and it varies from person to person where the balance needs to be some people the main thing that you need to focus on is how to protect that person in the situation they're in because they're at the limit of what they can cope with and others the focus will be on okay how can we help organize to agitate for change in this, mm-hmm. um, I mean, my perspective has partly changed as you know I've got older and achieved positions of I suppose greater academic seniority, and it's very easy to uh, all too easy to still think of myself as someone who you know, doesn't really have very much power. But I now have a relatively senior academic position. I'm involved in work which gives me more of a chance to shape the institutions of which I'm a part in ways other than simply by protest. I mean, I sit on relevant committees and things like that. And I think some of the change in my thinking over the last 15 years has simply been accompanying that shift into positions where it is easier to take more notice of the systemic changes needed and to try to find things to do with the sort of... um, energy for angry protests that I had back before I wrote that um, vulnerable learning book. But yeah, it's a balancing the the personal and the systemic. Um, I don't think there's a single right answer there. There's a balancing
0: act. <laughs> yes, and and I think that fits in also with what I also say to to people when they ask me is as I say, the thing is as human beings we tend to be quite lazy and look for the silver bullet the one size fits all the thing that is going to sort it out for everybody and the truth is you know there isn't a silver bullet there's no magic wand and like you're saying for some people it might be one particular thing for other people it might be another particular thing um and it's about catering for that so you know you were talking earlier on about for for, for example your phd students for me with for i often think in terms of my the, the classroom or when i'm with my duties or my personal duties it's about holding the space for them to feel safe and and secure um and i guess you know it, it it's about that holding that the, the space but also you know, think thinking about going back to that sort of balance about individual and, and systemic is also thinking, okay, what can I do as an individual that, that might create a little bit of a change? Yep. And and you know, I can't remember who said that, but being the change you want to see in the world, probably Gandhi or some some somebody like that said that. Um because because otherwise then there's that frustration right if if we don't feel we can do something yeah that generates that frustration and we might take it on march on the marches to you know demonstrate or um so it's so finding how to to express that i guess is what i'm trying to say
1: yeah and i think one aspect of this for me um is and i think this is possibly already a little bit visible in what i wrote back then and became i wrote another book in this area um, theology of higher education about 2012 um, where
0: it's more um, (laughs) um,
1: and that is thinking about institutions um, and the importance of working on the institutions within which we work of thinking about Um, just the processes by which those institutions function right down to the nuts and bolts of administration, the the management, the processes of communication and and feedback and so on and realizing how much of the quality of the educational experience that people have and and the experience that staff have is shaped by the healthiness of the institution um, that they're a part of and how much labor it takes and mostly unseen labour to make institutions work well and be responsive and not sort of simply deadening um, for people. And I think there can be a tendency on the part of um, academics, um, to certainly in my line of academia, to sort of feel like... uh, Um, I just want to get on with my work and talk to my students and and leave the institutional stuff up to other people because that's this this sort of grey world of management and and I don't want anything to do with that but it's not something foreign to caring about the quality of learning that you're engaged in and that your students are engaged in so both research and teaching to care about the institutions that make it possible and if if we don't spend time caring about the institutions we end up storing up problems for ourselves and our students when it comes to real learning, because the institutional spaces make a difference and the health of those spaces make a difference, um, a really deep difference. They, they are part of what creates that sense of safety for experimentation. Um, they're part of, of what creates the spaces within which we can interact with a wide range of other people and get put in, in contact with people we wouldn't naturally gravitate to. The, um, so yes, in caring about institutions and caring about the boring details of, of the management of institutions has to be part of this picture as well, not just offloaded onto other people.
0: Um, yes, yeah, yeah, totally. And uh, yes, because the environment plays a big part in, uh, you know, having, I remember what, you know, I worked in the reason I wrote, I wrote The Flourishing Students is because I worked in in HE between 2000s and two, well in, the, in the, that particular institution 2000-2005 then I left and had nine year gap and I came back in 2014 and to say that I was just horrified about what I came back to is an understatement um, and that's why I've been so curious in exploring all of the things I've been exploring so as a linguist and a you know Sort of my specialism is 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 language and intercultural competence. I um I see myself a bit as an ethnographer so I love watching how people you know when I see someone behave in a certain way that that really contradicts work or my maps of the world so my values and my beliefs I always think Okay, that's very interesting because you're clearly navigating the world with a map that I I don't have, and mm-hmm. so rather than judging, I just really look at them and go right. Okay, what makes you think that this map of the world, or you know what you're doing, is is okay? Mm-hmm. Um, and like you, I have seen this notion that you know in our students, but also in colleagues, it's of using words like again, because of language for me, is so important, the university, the institution, you know, senior management as these global, all-encompassing words. But I often say to, to my students, they sort of say, well, you know, but the university, and I say, what do you mean by that? What What is the university? And then, you know, so my student the other day, she was worried because she's obviously got health issues and was worried that she might not do all of her assignments and why if they if they kick me out and so I was like right okay let's come down and look at who's they so she said the university and I was like what does that mean Mm -hmm. oh well you know the school and I went what does that mean and I literally got her to chunk it down into you know, to literally saying, well, people like you. <laughs> it's like, yes, people like me. So do you really think that people like me, who are your personal tutor, you know, are going to chuck you out? And it's like, oh, no. But there's this tendency, isn't there, as human beings, to find for the silver bullets, but also to generalise because it makes it easier. Would you, would you agree with that? Yeah,
1: that's a really helpful I love that response of you know who who do you mean by the university who do you mean by the school, and it. I've worked in um, a small number of, of very different universities now, and um, you know, paying attention to the structures they work. It is occasionally true that there's you know there is a centre and that centre is a small number of people with a great deal of power even in the context i was in where that was most true that was still only one part of a much more complicated picture and learning something about both the structures and the people involved and therefore what kinds of freedom you might actually have and what possibilities for action and for change there might really be Um, and also though this can be a really ambiguous thing um, you know, whether at times you can achieve more by getting involved than by protesting. Now sometimes protesting is exactly the thing you need to do and you know, I was on um, picket lines a few times earlier this year and was happy to be there in the context that was the right place to be I think um, but equally at other times the right place to be is you know, in committee meetings just working through the details of making things happen and building relationships with the other people who need to be convinced, and, and doing some of the politics of change. It's a, a judgement call as to you know, whether you need to be on the outside shouting, or on, on the inside um, just work, you know, working on, on change. But both are, uh, are needed. And sometimes learning the institution you're a part of and, and the, the relationships, the people and the structures, is um, the only way in which a good change happens. There's a um, one of the things I have in the back of my mind as we talk about this. Um, had a friend and colleague in Cambridge, Timothy Jenkins, who um, uh, was he'd been a university chaplain in Nottingham and went on to be um, dean of chapel in Jesus College in Cambridge, and he was a um, social anthropologist, an ethnographer, and he. Um, sort of his academic background and his academic work he continued doing that um, and he brought that ethnographic sensibility to his work as a chaplain part of whose responsibility was to sort of work not just with students but with staff in institutions and he he just talked about um, there's a little book called an experiment in providence which is a collection of papers some of which are about his experience as a chaplain and one of the things he talks about being a chaplain was simply noticing what goes on in a university, which sounds like an entirely banal thing to say, but really in the way that you're talking about, noticing the behaviours, the, the assumptions that people appear to be making, the, the interactions that actually make this strange thing that you might be tempted to think of as a monolithic of a university, is just as you said, noticing all the, all the little interactions that actually power that and shape that and the spaces where they happen Where does the life of this institution actually transpire? And where are the the points where you've got an opportunity to make a difference within that? Mm -hmm. Some spaces you won't be invited into, some spaces you won't have a voice, but others you will. And understanding where they fit in the bigger tapestry is an an ethnographic task. It it requires as much attentiveness as any of our academic disciplines uh, require. And um, And that's not foreign to the... The learning that we're engaged in. It's not another topic, it's part of the picture of yes. encouraging healthy, flourishing learning for students and staff.
0: Yes, yeah, no, I like that. I might I might see if I can reach um, Timothy then, in that case as well. That might be a good interview to be had if he's, if yeah. he's interested. Yeah, thank you. Um, so going back to the to the you know the the context and the current situation and where we are now, how do you view learning for the next sort of like five years or you know if we have another sort of conversation in five years time or ten years time, what do you think what would you like to see changed or do you hope will, will have changed?
1: Well um, you know this is something that many other people are talking about, and, and, and many people are talking about with much more expertise and experience than me. But you know, I've, for the last while, been involved in a whole set of conversations about, um, well, racism and about decolonizing the curriculum, And um, for me, that very much fits into the kind of journey we were talking about, right back at the start in that, you know, with the help of some of my black friends and colleagues and Asian friends and colleagues and others talking to them about their experiences of particularly studying theology in higher education contexts and studying for ministry and the kind of institutions that I, I work with um, and hearing how differently some of the language and structures and processes that I'm involved in maintaining have sounded, or how, how differently they've been experienced from their point of view, how things which I had thought of as neutral are very far from neutral. How, how things that I thought of as positives have a real negative edge to them. So continuing that journey where I've learned to speak less about vulnerability or to be much more cautious about language that, like that, um, I'm also realizing in other ways um, just how, um, yeah, how exclusive or marginalizing some of the the ways I've taught in the past have been. And it's, you know, there are the, the obvious things like looking at the um, uh, the names on my bibliographies and, and so on, and realizing how narrow a sector of the human conversation those names represent. But it goes much more deeply than that and I feel like I am you know belatedly on a journey that's got a lot further to go and I'm very grateful for the patience of those people I'm talking to and working with who you know, haven't completely given up on me or, or on colleagues in a similar position yet they have the, every reason to do so and just looking to see how deep the transformation in our as I say in my case the sort of curricular in in Christian doctrinal theology need to be and there's real excitement there. there's wonderful resources that I'd overlooked and been insufficiently aware of but also really painful realizations that I need to you know stop saying some of the things I've really loved saying in the past because I now realize that they have different valences for different audiences I look back at not so much now that Stuff I wrote on education, but some of the stuff I've written in the Christian doctrine area. And it, it's a painful thing looking back at stuff I wrote 10 years ago and thinking, how could I not have been more aware of you know, who wasn't in the room, who I wasn't mm. including back then? It's, it's um, embarrassing and shaming. But the important thing is not to sort of wallow in the shame and sort of get stuck on um, trying to sort of feel and express enough guilt about it, but to change and to, to work with others to change well. And I'm, I, you know, most days find that an exciting challenge and I look forward to seeing where it leads. So, you know, there are days when it's really difficult Get that sense that I was talking about in PhD students of not knowing where I'm heading or not knowing whether there's any way of saying some of the things I thought I wanted to carry on saying and there's that feeling of, of loss of direction. Most days though it's a, an excitement and a privilege still to be in a position where I, I get to have these conversations and get to I hope carry on learning and changing. Yeah
0: oh, I love that because it it's very much yeah, it's it's also being in that position that makes us that enables us to develop the compassion and empathy for others right it's also experiencing those challenges when, you know I was saying to a student that i had a disappoint disappointing news yesterday and then i had to talk to them about their exam because they wanted to understand how they did you know according to them so badly because they never had this mark before and and I, you know, I said in in the conversation, you know, please do not believe that just because we are, you know, I'm in the position I am, that I'm protected from, you know, encountering challenges or difficult difficulties, or, or you know, or like you're saying, you know, being French, living in the UK, um, and being a linguist, I've always thought of myself as being really open-minded, uh, and you know, and then. And then when the Black Lives Matters happened, I was just sort of thinking, well, am I, am I really this, like, really this person who believes she's so open and so, you know, um, and so like you, I do realise that, you know, I'm in a position of privilege. I'm, you know, I'm a, I'm a white middle aged you know middle-class woman and yes i started from being from a working class and you know i've i've studied and have, you know got to where i am um so i haven't forgotten my roots but i i still have i'm in a position of privilege and and recognizing that white privilege for me is a start right to so just uh, to to start have having possibly challenging conversations and, yeah. and yeah.
1: absolutely and um I'm gonna sound like someone who keeps on mentioning things he's written, like I'm advertising all the time, but I wrote a blog post a couple of months ago, um, just at the beginning of lockdown, in fact, just trying to talk about the ways in which, the multiple ways in which I'm in a position of privilege and some of the ways that plays out in in academic work to make sort of academic promotion and academic, um, uh, just the sort of journey through UK higher education easy for me in ways I hadn't always noticed in the past. Um, But um, therefore, for someone in my kind of position, and this is where different messages are needed for different people, this would no longer be something I'd say as a sort of universal message, but one of the kinds of learning that I know I need to um, go deeper in myself, in the position of privilege that I occupy, is precisely what you were just saying a moment ago of getting past the point where I automatically think of myself as one of the good guys, where, you know, I must be on the side of right and justice and truth. Uh, You know, I've been, I've, I've been doing the right thing. I've been broadly great, all this, trying to get past that sort of picture of myself as innocent, not then in order to wallow in feelings of guilt and shame and things, but just in order to, to see that that picture of myself as innocent becomes a blockage to certain kinds of change, to just saying, yep, I I got that wrong and that has harmed people and it needs to change and can I work to find with others the way to change that. So yeah, both acknowledging the privilege um, and being willing to just stop putting myself on a particular kind of pedestal. Again, those for me are crucial elements in in the learning journey I'm on. But they'd be very different from the things that might need to be recognised by some of my students or some of the people around me.
0: Yes, yeah, and the balance might be completely different. So you know, you don't, yeah, so you don't fall into the like you were saying the 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 extreme pride and the you know very egocentric sort of you know i'm so good and uh, but also not not going into the feeling so guilty that you you feel you can't contribute either and it's a it's a delicate sort of balance um yeah wonderful so before we we wrap up and we finish the the podcast, um, I always ask my guests to, um, for you, you know, from these conversations, what are the one or two things that you would want our listeners to think about or to take away from our conversation to get them thinking further?
1: I think I'd want them... The main, the one main thing I'd want to do is is point people back to that idea from right at the beginning of the conversation about, conversation about, um, what journeys people need to go on to reach the point where they feel like they are able genuinely to contribute to a shared conversation for a conversation that's bigger than them, but that includes them. And that sense that for some people. the main thing they need to do is stop shouting all the time and start listening a bit more for others it's practicing their voice so they're able to speak Uh, not so that we become a a cacophony just of people speaking at each other but so that there's a real engagement with one another but in which every voice is listened to seriously and that picture of a conversation is what we're inviting people into particularly in sort of humanities style work where i think that's right at the fore i mean versions of it true in the sciences and other subjects as well, but particularly, you know, in humanity style work where in, in a university context, it's very directly you write that conversation, you experience that conversation in class. Think about that, you know, the ideal ongoing conversation and what journeys people need to go on from where they are to the point where they can become valued participants in, in that conversation as a whole. I love
0: that. Thank you um thank you so much for, oh, for the conversation i've thoroughly enjoyed it oh, wow. been great really, really really insightful thank you so much for your time um and um what i'll do is obviously when i when i release the uh, the podcast I'll, I'll email it to you so you can share if you if you want to share as well
1: thank you well, I've, I've had a great time. Thank you very much. It's been great. Thank you very much.
0: Thanks. Bye.
1: Bye.